Shop Talk Live episode number 214. Mike Farrington joins us. I'm very, very excited about this episode. Ever since I discovered Mike's YouTube channel, I knew that he would be a part of this podcast at some point. And today is the day. So Anissa and I talked to Mike about built-ins and tools and workbenches and all sorts of great things. Uh, It's a really fun conversation, and I'm sure we'll have Mike on many, many more times. Also, I want to let everyone know about finewoodworking.com slash favorites. It is our newly designated staff picks area. We thought it would be great to give the readers and listeners a spot where they could head to and look up our favorite mortising articles or our favorite workbench articles or our favorite sharpening articles or one day project articles. We've been working on a really quick and easy way for you to get to probably some of the best fine woodworking content on a subject by subject basis. Finewoodworking.com slash favorites. I think it's going to be a useful section of the website for a lot of people. All right, on with the show. So I am here with a uh, fan favorite, Anissa, Chop Salad, Capsalis. <laughs> That's the only way I remember how to pronounce your last name. Was it Dylan who came up with that? And no, it was Chris Casey. Chris Casey. Okay. I think so. It could have been Dylan, but I'm pretty sure it was Chris Casey. <laughs> All right. <laughs> And as always, Jeff Rose is here. And just so that people don't think we're being mean to Jeff, because we keep getting comments, well, why don't you let Jeff talk? We would let Jeff talk if Jeff wanted to talk. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But we are are also joined by by one of my absolute favorite YouTubers, uh, Woodworker. Um, crap. Now I was going to throw a different name out there, but, um, Mike Farrington. (laughs) (laughs) Pleasure to be here. (laughs) I am like, I'm not one of those people who's excited about a pandemic, but it gives us the ability to, it forces the hand to remote podcast. And then we get to, it doesn't make it more difficult to have awesome people like you on Mike. So thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, and I'm not doing anything else either except sitting in my house. So, it looks like you've been busy being though, working on your shop and yeah, yeah, uh, just shifting gears. There's just a ton of stuff to do around the house and shop. So, yeah. you know, trying to make the best use of my time. Yeah. Um, and you had just posted a blog of all of the ways that a frugal woodworker deals with times like this. So you've been. Uh, putting up a new dust collection system. What what else? What else are you doing? You, you're working on new shop cabinets. Absolutely. Uh, if, let me just say, frugal woodworkers redundant. You know, woodworkers <laughs> have to be frugal. I don't yeah, know uh, if you know about <laughs> <laughs> recreational woodworkers and the money they oh, they yeah. have a tendency of spending and and the shops that they. Sometimes I have seen plenty. Yes. If you do this for a living, you have to be frugal. Yes, yes, yes. But yeah, you know, I uh, just um, customers have pushed off work and I'm just taking this time to do all the things that I have told myself I need to do. Uh, rewiring the shop, dust collection, working on the house. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just finished the dust collection system, which is awesome. A couple more little small things. Obviously, there's always little tweaks and tunes. Uh, after that, yeah, it's going to be onto some shop cabinets, chop saw station. And then uh, I'm going to turn my attention to the house. Cool. And yes, I wrote an awesome blog post about it. So you guys should all go check that out, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And um, so, so, and also just for the record, you are like most of our audience is going to know you from YouTube and you're making tens um, of dollars there. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, and it's, it's tough times for advertisers too. And YouTube sells ad spots on like a bid basis. Um, so, you know, there are fewer companies buying ad spots. So, yeah, it's, oh, it's, so, it's tough times there, too. So another reason is to, going down, too. Yeah, oh, wow. yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's fine. I'm, you know, I, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining at all. Uh, my wife and I are in a real fortunate position to live where we live. Shop is on the property, so I, I only have one mortgage, yeah. essentially. So I'm able to make good use of the time and not overly stress out yeah, about good. it. Yeah, good. All right. Well, I'll stop harassing you about it then. <laughs> Yeah, way to make him anxious about it, Ben. 
um, are, do, do we want to answer some questions? I'm game. Yeah. Anissa, you, you, you good with your very bad network? Yes. Are you? Well, I'm, I need to be network. apparently. <laughs> Wait, you said it was just an average network. Well, now you're, you're back down to very bad. bad. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a hundred percent of my brain focus right now is on Anissa's internet connection. Just so bear with me, audience. And it's not, it's not that green stripe that's right there. I what can, is that? Well, Jeff is going to Photoshop that into something else. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Cats and dogs. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> Jeff will be creative. All right. So the first question is from Mark. My work table is oversized, four foot by eight foot and nine inches, big enough to house full sheet goods on a shelf underneath, and a second shelf has incredible storage possibilities. On top, there's room for a workspace, a planer station, a tool caddy, a big marble slab for dead flat reference work. Uh, the top can be quickly configured for many different operations. If my workbench was smaller and many items had to find a different home, would the benefits out outweigh the cost? I think bigger is more efficient. Am I missing the force for the trees? What would be gained from having a smaller workbench? And I save this because Mike, you have both a big workbench and a small workbench. Well, not small. So I don't know. I think this guy's onto something. Uh, I don't think he's missing anything. I mean, his question is, am I missing anything? This is a really good idea. Um, having a bunch of small little workstations that you kind of scoot around the shop. I think that can work for some people, depending on the size of their shop, if they're parking their car in there, but to have one big area is great um, to be able to pull a four by eight or a five by five sheet of plywood onto a workbench and to cut it down is convenient. Um, that huge work surface creates a ton of storage options underneath. Yeah. I mean, if he has a, like a bench top planer, he can shove that under there. If he has a bench top jointer, drill press and so on. I think it's a good idea. I'm game. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go build one myself now. <laughs> well, you, you have, you have a four by eight work table, yeah. right? Yep. And yours is fancy and is on a hydraulic lift system as well. Yeah, mine's on a scissor lift. And um, if you build big stuff, you just got to have a big workbench. Most of the work that I do is um, built-ins and things like that. So uh, to be able to put together a large built-in and not have it hanging off the end of a small bench is convenient. The scissor lift I have obviously is a, a real um, luxury, let's call it. And uh, so, yeah, when I go to lift something heavy, I just hit the down button. It goes all the way to the floor, drag it off onto a furniture dolly, and I'm good to go. But uh, having a big workspace where you can spread out is really nice. Sometimes I roll out big plans on it, uh, do full-size drawings on, um, you know, eighth-inch plywood. That's convenient. I, I like this guy's idea. How how big is your shop? <clears throat> uh, <laughs> um, I've been sort of <laughs> that means big. I've been sort of coy <laughs> about kind of mentioning it because it it it, it kind of doesn't matter how how big the shop is. Uh, it's it's too big is the answer. Um, I mean, trying to heat it and all I, that stuff is like crazy. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's 50 feet wide by 58 feet long. So that's, that, that's a shop. Yeah. And, and the, 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 the ceiling height in the middle is 18 feet. I'm sorry. It's 17 feet. Wow. Sidewalls. The sidewalls are 12 feet and I have a scissor truss. Uh, so it's all clear. There's no support of anything in, in, in the middle, you know, holding up the roof or anything like that. Wow. Yeah. So, so did you build that or was that, on, no. on the property. So you bought the property with uh, that. The previous homeowner built it. Uh, that guy had a snowplow business. So he parked all of his just skid steers and, and wacky stuff in there for that, which is why I have so many roll-up doors. There's, there was four roll-up doors on the shop. Now there's three. I plugged up one of the roll-up doors. Uh, and hopefully this summer I'll plug up two more and I'll just have the one that my van goes in and out of. Yeah. So, yeah, so you, I Wait. mean, you, you really try and because of this shop, you've been able to set up your whole flow pretty efficiently because it looks like you park your van right next to your slider, yeah, break down plywood, which is right next to the the big workbench or, or whatever, right? I mean, so, so you can process a lot of material very, very quickly. 
Yeah, I can. I mean, in, in, in that regard, I'm very lucky. I can lay out sheets of plywood like crazy. Um, but you know, I mean, a, a normal job could have uh, 15, 20 sheets and, you know, so I pull that out onto a cart then from the cart, you know, I unload from my van to a cart and then cart onto the sliding table saw. Typically most of my projects, I start breaking down sheet goods, uh, just cause they're, that, that's the most annoying part. And I just want to get it out of the way. And, uh, yeah, sliding table saw right next to my van. And that was done very much on purpose because, material you know the biggest heaviest materials come directly out of my van and they go directly onto the saw without having to meander around the shop Mm -hmm. now okay so anisa you're you've you've got like a regular what we'll say two car garage size shop right yeah you wouldn't be able to fit a four by eight workbench right 20 by 24 um it would be super tight i would have to I, no, I couldn't. I couldn't because all my. Do you park a car from, in your shop? Um, just the front. I just no. I don't. I don't. I was going to try and be funny, but it wouldn't have been. <laughs> no, I don't actually have a two car garage. I have a detached building in my yard, and it's it's about oh, okay. the size of a two car garage. It's twenty by twenty four. So I'm anything that I'm picking up or having delivered just gets to delivered to the front of the house and then I have to lug it back. Okay. Um, well, we can't all have former. <laughs> She's also not dealing with 15 sheets at a time. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, the most I've ever had to, usually I would, if I was doing plywood stuff, I would break it down at the fine woodworking shop and then just bring the pieces home and, and but now, <laughs> but now, which that would actually be my preference too, to just break all my stuff down at the fine woodworking shop. <laughs> all Me of us too. would love to have the fine woodworking shop back right now. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> one, one element, or there's one word in Mark's question that like puts up a little bit of a red flag for me and my workflow is that. He says, I can quickly configure it for many different operations. And like, I have learned that I am not going to configure anything when I am in the middle of a project. If it's like, if the router table is, is inaccessible, crap, I need to find another way of doing it. Or if there's too much stuff on my table saw, fine, I'll break down at the bandsaw or whatever. Um, that whole so like if if Mark is the type of person who does not mind configuring things, of course, there's nothing to be lost. I think a lot of people have things spread out and separate so that they don't have to configure things. I think that's a good point. I think that's very much like those uh, the joiner planer combos. Yeah, I think they're great. They're great space savers. You get a big joiner out of it, but you do have to flip back and forth. I I kind of have this like low energy approach, very much like you, Ben. Like if I have to move a bunch of stuff to do something, there's a good chance I'm I'm going to do it a different way. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So I I see those big huge workstations, um, and they look really cool, and they might be a really efficient way of storing things but i don't know if they're efficient way of working so that that's what and i i don't have a big shop but i have a large enough shop where i can have you know one and a half workbenches and one is the outfeed for my table saw and you know i i I have to be efficient with my with my space and and how i use it but i don't have a big enough area to have a four by eight anything in the middle of my shop so i was just Go ahead, Mike. No, no, no. Please, you first. Um, okay. <laughs> We're not used to politeness here, so. <laughs> <laughs> I was just gathering a bunch of articles for um, a blog that I'm doing on, on shop upgrades. And uh, one of them was um, a collection of cool things that you could do in the shop. And this guy, I'm going to have to find the article for you to post, Ben. But this guy yeah. had... Um, he had a work table hinged to hinged to the wall and would just drop it down when he needed it. And it's a really cool idea. Although I don't know that I would have the dedicated wall space for that. I would I, have to take all my clamps off the wall, but it was a cool concept. It was like a Murphy bed, almost <laughs> work table. 
I really yearn for more wall space in my shop. And I bet you, Mike, you do too, because you have, you're 30 feet from any wall at any given point. <laughs> Put a wall up in the middle just to have more wall space. <laughs> I, I, I would, I can imagine that because that was one problem with the old fine woodworking shop was you were, it was just, you're too far away from everything. Um, but wall space, I only have, like I have one wall where my workbench, one of my, my, my wall workbenches, and then everything else is carriage doors. So I want, and one of them, like I open up when I'm waiting for my son to get off the bus and it's raining. So I don't want to hang tools on it. And so like wall space is such a premium. Anytime I see like a fold down router table or whatever, um, I think, oh, that's great. Crap, I don't have any walls. But. You know, it's funny. Uh, so I do have a big shop. I'm fortunate to have my big shop, but the wa- the interior walls aren't finished. Um, that Some of them are partially finished. Um, that's actually one of the projects that I'm hoping to tackle here during this whole lockdown situation is gain more wall space. Yeah. So if um, my building a, is a pole barn and the, the, the verticals, whatever those are called, are like six feet apart, so, and then in between that is just a foam board insulation. So it's like super hard to hang anything on the walls. And each of the verticals, I have like a bunch of screws with like rulers and just various things hanging from those. Yeah. Yeah. Wall, wall space is important in any shop. And um, mm-hmm. I like the full down bench idea. That's, that's cool. But yeah, uh, I want more wall space too. What's and your, hopefully I can. What's uh, your plan? Are you going to like uh, do a 16 on, on center wall in front of the, the pole? I'm going to go super easy. I'm going to put up actually another layer of two inch foam nice. board. So I'll have four inches. Um, and then I'm just going to run 12 foot two by fours kind of on their side, just spanning from vertical oh. to vertical to vertical all the way down. Then on top of that, okay. I'll either do, I'll say three quarter inch plywood over top of that. But in the reality, it's going to, you know, it'll be CDX or five eighths, something or other, just something cheaper. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then to that, I want to be able to hang cabinets and clamps and jigs and, you know, all the other cool woodworking stuff. Uh, that That's going to make it so much easier to organize. Yeah. Um, I, I have this like joke that I sort of abuse the size of my shop where I just, I just lay everything on the ground <laughs> and I just have it. <laughs> Just like the, there's a pile of clamps over here and there's a pile of lumber over here and everything's just sitting on the ground. So, yeah. Um, but I'll tell you what, you can really waste all the space in a shop real quickly by doing yeah. that. So taking the time to make workstations and and homes for clamps and, and things like that is super important. Yeah. You know, and I think kind of the lesson that Mark teaches us here is that um, kind of everybody's system is different. Listening to you talk, Ben, listening to you, Anissa, like we all kind of have these these different scenarios and um I, I think the key is to like experiment and try and come up with something that works for your shop your workflow you know a turner's shop is going to look different than a cabinet shop versus a furniture shop and um yeah you know you just it, it, it's a constant like never-ending project and you just need to keep refining it well and i also think that you know a lot of people say well Back in 2005, Chris Shore said that my workbench should only be 22 inches deep. And that's because that's what he likes, you know? So that works for Chris. That doesn't work for everybody. And sometimes a four by eight sheet is better for you. And if that's what works for you, great. If I rebuild my workbench, it's going to be three by five because that's the piece of junk workbench that I stole from the old shop is three by five and I really like the footprint of it and it's working for me. So that's what it's going to be. It doesn't matter what anybody else says you should stick to. It's what works for you. Yeah, I agree. Uh, As I always say, you know, whatever launches your missile. So if Chris Schwarz wants a a small workbench and that works for him, well, that's cool. Um, I, my more traditional like cabinet maker style workbench is, uh, 33 inches by 70 inches. And wow. if I had to just work on that one workbench uh, and I was just doing a more typical furniture project, I, I would find that size to be really good. Where the four by eight workbench really starts to help out is when I'm doing larger projects. Yeah. Um, that's when, uh, yeah, I mean, you can't, almost can't have a big enough workbench when when you're working on very large projects. Yeah. 
All right. Um, all right. Let's see. Question number two is from Patrick who uh, Patrick's awesome. I hung out with him at hands on in San Diego and we had tacos together. So yeah, Patrick. <laughs> um, I know that you say that you should change sandpaper as soon as you think it's getting old or when you take it off to change grits, you shouldn't put it back on. But there are countless times when I'm sanding and I change grits and the paper is obviously brand new. Is there any scientific or professional input on when abrasives actually break down? So that's, Patrick's got two questions here. Let's, let's just take, take that on. Cause Mike, you, you spend a lot of time wielding a sander. Yeah, I sure do. What, what's your, what's your trigger? Yeah, I just watch for cutting speed. Um, nice fresh sandpaper cuts real fast and it cuts real fast for a short period of time. And then it kind of falls off into this just barely acceptable range. And I kind of work in that range for a little bit. And then I pull out a new disc. Um, with that said, I have kind of a process that my sandpaper goes through. Um, where, this where, is the only yeah, audience I, where people get excited when you say that. So right, relish right, the yeah, moment, no, right. Mike. Yeah, let's talk. <laughs> of, let's, let's make the most boring subject on planet Earth even more boring. Um, I don't throw those discs away. Sandpaper? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's just talk about both. Let's talk about gluing sandpaper. Um, I take a disc and I use it for a bit and then I set it aside. And then uh, I'll typically use those ones that I set aside as little hand sanders. Okay. So like if I'm sanding a round over or something like that, the cool thing about that is then I could match grits. So if my final sanding grit is 220 and I have an older 220 grit disc and I'm just, you know, cleaning up a little corner or something like that. I know that those grits match. So, um, and then after that, uh, they get downgraded once again to when I'm sanding finishes. So, you know, how like you're sanding something and, and it just clogs up the sandpaper super quick. Then I feel like I've really gotten my usage out of that sandpaper. So it's kind of like, there's like the first, second and third layers of how I use the sandpaper. And um, one other trick uh, maybe that I'll, that I'll share is everybody always has problems with the little pigtails in their finish yeah. from sanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing you should do is before you finish a grit, so like if you're going to sand through three grits of sandpaper, um, before you finish your last one, if it's 220 grit, like vacuum off the surface or blow it off or dust it off or something, and then put a, like a perfectly fresh disc on. And then just kiss the surface one more time real good with that fresh piece of sandpaper. So where are the pigtails actually coming from? Is um it's I, I personally think it's one of a couple of things. It's leftover grit from a previous okay. disc, if that makes yeah. sense. So if there's a, a 120 grit particle lodged in the, you know, a pore of the wood, then your 220 grit pulls it out. It's just gonna make a bunch of swirls. I think that's one cause. So you got to clean between grits. Two is it it could be bad sandpaper. And even the best sandpaper companies have imperfections. I mean, if if you look at how they make the sandpaper, the grits that are applied to the paper are 99% size between, you know, two numbers. Well, yeah. that's 99%. That means there there could be some imperfections in there. So th- there is some amount there. And the other thing is it just could be not a super great sander. Um I, I think a better sander is uh, obviously it's more powerful and um, but I think a better, the, the best sanders are really ergonomic so that when you're holding them, you can apply an appropriate amount of pressure. A, a bad sander, in my opinion, is really top heavy, mm-hmm. which you, you might tend to lean from side to side. And obviously that could dig in. But I think that's probably the most important feature of a sander is that it's very ergonomic and it allows you to apply a good, even kind of soft pressure as you're sanding. So, so do you, you had mentioned that you vacuum off before you do that final kiss with 220 or whatever. Do you vacuum mm-hmm. between grits to keep from? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 I don't think I've ever um, done the, that and I really should. Well, the thing is, it depends. Okay, so if you're just going to throw some polyurethane or some other clear coat lacquer or something on top, um, it's far less important. If you're going to apply a stain, yeah, you have to be on your A game because the stain tends to fall into those pigtails and it calls attention to them. Versus if you're just putting some clear coat over top of it, you would need a microscope to see the pigtails. Huh. Um, and then there's sort of a different sanding reg- you know, um, regimen that, that you would need to apply. If you're doing a film finish, 
don't sand too high. Um, if you're doing like an oil finish, like a really close to the wood finish, you're going to need to sand it like crazy grits, like four, four or 600 would be a minimum yeah. if you're just going to apply like, um, you know, linseed oil or walnut oil or something like that. Um, and in those cases, um, yeah, you know, clean it off, clean it off between grits. Typically, if you're going to do a close to the wood finish, it's a nicer project. And, um, so yeah, you, you gotta be on your A game for that too. Right on. Wow. There was a lot of really great information in there. I yeah, do a old. lot. Of <laughs> I mean, a lot of it. Yeah. But what about the, what about the part where once you take it off the sander to switch grits, you don't put it back on. That seems like a waste to me. May, you mean the sandpaper? And yeah. in, in Patrick's like question. I'm, yeah. If, if, if um, I'm yeah, going that, that's where that's that's where I downgrade it to one of those other usages. So I would just turn it into uh, like like a like so that last disc that I used to just do a quick kiss on it, I would then use that as as a as a hand piece of hand sandpaper. Um, and they also sell like um, like uh, I think it's called like a sanding mouse or something yeah, like that, yeah, where you yeah, can yeah. put hook and loop sandpaper onto a block, and then it becomes a nice little pad to hand sand with. So. How do you organize all of these? I I couldn't keep track. Now, granted, I I I have like I have a little folder, hardwood folder, hardwood and duct tape folder for my sandpaper storage. That those are the ones that I'm in the in using at any moment. But um, how do you keep track of? Oh crap! I use this one for for this one. Now it's at this step, or it, it just it seems like a lot. <clears throat> Well, the new ones are obviously easy to keep track oh, okay, of. Okay, yeah, and then yeah. Past, past that, um, I, I just I have kind of two piles. I have like my 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 still pretty nice pile, and then here's the beater pile. And the beater piles, you know, when when you're sanding finish or or something like that. Okay, all right. So yeah, I just essentially have piles of each of the new sandpapers, and then a kind of an intermediate pile, and a, these are on the way out the door pile. Okay, right on. <clears throat> Um, all right. Now let's see the second part of Patrick's question as a small scale professional woodworker. I recently hired an employee who has a background in woodworking. I'm nervous that if I assign them tasks that they're not familiar with on high end commission work, that something may get messed up. I love teaching people these skills, but I'm weary of teaching then teaching and then immediately testing those skills on a piece that someone is paying for. The stakes are pretty high. Any tips? Anissa, have you, uh, you worked in under, uh, masters or whatever before. Do you, do you remember what the process was like being relegated? Um, yeah, I'm sure it's nerve wracking on both ends of that. Whether you're the person whose, um, business it is or the person who's being hired, I'm sure it's a little nerve wracking, but I guess the key here is, that he should be, um, if he's, if he knows it's something that somebody's not familiar with, do your best to get them familiar with it before you put them to work on the task. Um, there's nothing wrong with test pieces. Sometimes it might be better taking the time to do that before you set somebody loose on something. Um, but I can assure you, he or she is equally as anxious about messing up a client's work as. Mm. Patrick is. Uh, did did you, um, Mike? Did did you ever? Uh, did you work as an apprentice, or or did you go through that process? Yeah, I worked for a couple of different contractor types, um, and then I also worked in a not a real large cabinet shop, but a larger cabinet shop, and. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny, like kind of thinking about it now, my, my first reaction to this question would be like, fire the person, you know, work <laughs> alone or whatever. That's after all, all these years of kind of going through the trades. But I mean, I was that person who screwed up projects, like when I was, you know, 17 years old. So, I, so listening to Anissa talk about nerves on both sides, like, yeah, I get that. Um, you know, I wanted to do good. And, uh, but uh, you know, I didn't know how. And, and so that just means screwing up projects when you get started. So if I was this guy and I had an employee, which I've gone through that route yeah. and I just kind of decided I like working alone. Um, I would, um, set up test pieces, like show them how to sand, show them how to, 
you know, use a nailer or a, a mortiser or a table saw. And, um, to a certain extent, you, the mistakes are going to be made. And, uh, you know, I know I still make mistakes. So you would have to expect somebody who's a newbie would make mistakes too. And you just need to build a little bit of that in, you know, maybe plan for one mistake per project and just, yeah. you know, you have to deal with it. Huh. So um, I, it, it's a good thing. It is very rewarding to, to, to help a woodworker along. I will say that. So try and take the good with the bad. If they screw something up and you know, okay, just rebuild it. But just, just remember that you're kind of teaching them skills that they're going to, that they're going to, you know, have for the rest of their life. So there's, there's honor in that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, one of the comments, go ahead, Ben. No, no, no. You're uh, you Again. Go? Okay. Well, I, you know, one of the common things that I have heard um, from people who hire help in their shops is that you are, spending a lot of time training this person and working with them and teaching them everything. But it, there's a, an element of it's, it's pretty much built in that they're going to leave you and go out on their own at some point. So there's a generosity in knowing that and still putting in that time with that person, knowing that they are eventually going to leave and go off and start their own shop most yeah. of the time. Yeah, that's sort of the circle of life in uh, the trades. And, uh, you know, I, I worked for a couple people and the last guy that I worked for, I kind of had a conversation with him up front saying like, I'm going to only be here for a short period of time because I'm getting ready to go do X, Y, and Z. And you know what? He was okay with that. And he was like, you know what? I did it too when I was a young guy. And this this was an older guy, like in his 60s. So, um yeah, I, I, I've had a couple employees and one of them worked with me for a bit. And right as they got good enough, they, they ducked out and then they were my competition. Yeah. So, but you, you kind of need to expect that too. That's just, that's part of it. Yeah. So try and try and treat the employee as good as you can, you know, give them what they want to, you know, it needs to make sense for you, but be as cool as you can, be as flexible as you can. And then know at some point that they're going to kind of duck out and go out on their own. Ultimately, the problem is there's just not enough money to pay them enough to keep them around. I mean, I kind of looked at what I was doing saying, okay, I'm working for this guy and I'm making X. If I went out on my own and I could be busy like eight days a month at, at a normal rate, um, you know, I would be making more money already, let alone if I could be even more busy than that. So that's just kind of the, that's just kind of the way that it goes. Yeah. I, the only experience that I've ever had with anything like that is in a recording studio situation. And generally when I had interns, they were doing it for school credit. So I didn't need to pay them. Um, but I always took it seriously that they were learning in the process. Um, and they were getting, you know, they, they cleaned the bathrooms, but they got knowledge in, in, in return. And that was just kind of the circle of life. And a few of them went on to become successful in, in, in the industry. Um, but when you're doing it for credit, it's a heck of a lot easier to have somebody come in and not pay them. I would have a hard time paying an hourly wage to someone that I I'm teaching still. So yeah, I feel for anyone in this situation, unless you actually need, like I think of Michael fortune where he's got um, Pete, you know, who's, who's he's been there for years. Pete knows exactly all of the tasks he needs to do and how he needs to do them and everything. And that, but that's a, that's a hard relationship to build. I'm sure for both entities. Yeah, that's a rare thing. And Michael Fortune, who's unbelievable, that guy, he is just one of the greats. He has a very unique business too. Yeah. And part of it is based on his own particular talent. Um, yeah. And as such, his business probably does a little better than just kind of your average furniture maker guy. And therefore, he probably has a little bit more budget to pay people to stay around. Yeah. Um, Maloof was the same way. If you look at the three guys that Maloof work with, like the one that's been there the shortest period of time is like 40 years. Yeah. So, um, but Maloof, again, a, a talented, unique individual with a unique business. So, you know, there, there's, there's, there's definitely more to that story. And, you know, I don't know what, what Patrick's business is. I mean, who knows? He, he could be doing awesome. So, but, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that um, a, a better run business can make an environment that is more conducive to, to keeping people to, to stay around. Speaking kind of from personal experience, I'm horrible at managing people. And that's probably why it didn't work out so well. And I, I think I recognized that pretty quickly. And I just said, you know what? I like working alone. Yeah. So I, I made that choice. I just said, I'm going to grow the business as big as I can uh, under under the umbrella of just one guy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Hey, well, Hank Gilpin. Ooh. No, no. Here. Yeah. It's my below average internet connection. <laughs> um, Hank Gilpin is another, is another really successful woodworker who has been able to um, employ assistants for years on end and really teach them and part of it's probably that he makes lunch for them, this fantastic lunch every day, but um, <laughs> he's been really successful with the, the training curve and keeping people and giving them a lot of responsibility and moving them along and keeping them for a long time. Yeah. And, and Gilpin is another one of those unique individuals. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that guy is absolute for genius. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. For the, sure. The rules are different for Michael fortunes and Hank Gilpin's maybe, but that that's a really good point. Mike. Um, all right. So let's, um, Jeff, should we do a stop and let files upload real quick? We could do that. All right. So we're going to do that. We're going to take a break. For more than 90 years, Woodcraft has been supplying woodworkers with quality tools, supplies, and advice. For the best in hand tools, power tools, and shop essentials, you can count on Woodcraft from start to finish. Check them out for woodworking classes, free demos, and project advice from knowledgeable, friendly staff. With 75 stores nationwide, you can find a store in your neighborhood or shop woodcraft.com for your favorite woodworking brands. Woodcraft, helping you make wood work since 1928. Have you ever heard that? Uh, and I don't know anything about sports. I just heard this, like I was watching a movie or something, and I heard this. There's in, in baseball. There's a there's a term called a five tool player, and that's I guess like they can hit, they can run, they can catch, they can throw whatever skills you need in baseball. Furniture making is the same way. Like like I, I was lucky enough to talk with Maloof a couple of times. Um, that you could put that guy in the middle of the Sahara Desert, and he could be selling sand, and and he would be successful. Oh. <laughs> like he's. He's just, it didn't matter what that guy was going to do. He was going to be good at yeah. it. So he has this particular business acumen. He has a way of promoting himself um, and people like it. It doesn't come across as arrogant. Um, but then combine that with another level of design, another level of a, of a engineering mind to come up with jigs to produce things quickly. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like you need to, to be a truly successful, like just furniture maker. You need to be a five tool player. Um, this is great. All right. <clears throat> that was fantastic. Mike, you are filled with gems. <laughs> <Delete> that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Are we ready for smooth moves? Oh, I'll go first. <laughs> I'll go first. Cause Anissa has to remember. Do, do you need the, the reminder, Anissa? N no, I, I don't need the reminder. Okay. All right. I will go first because I just discovered my actual smooth move. Weeks ago when we started this whole isolation thing and I set up my little shop setup office, home office, I hand planed this mystery wood that I got from John Tatro and just made a desk. It's not chestnut. You think he's giving away chestnut? No. <laughs> um, it's like he's, pine. He's got barns of chestnut. I know. It's <laughs> it's a it's a pine basswood. Who knows with a fair bit of knots and and it, but it makes for a good little work surface. And in the process, I was hand planing and spoke shaving, and just trying to make it comfortable and just a place to sit and. I knew that I dinged up my spoke shave blade on my, on my Caleb James spoke shave pretty, pretty bad name drop. Well, the reason why I say that is because it's the one problem that I do have with that now is it's a Dickens to regrind that blade. Cause it's a little stubby thing. And yeah, I just did it uh, with sandpaper. 
because uh, I couldn't figure out a good way to hold it at the grinder without making a jig that I didn't want to make. <laughs> um, but I, last night I realized that I also nicked the blade on my number three. And I have in the process just discovered where that nick where both of those nicks came from, there is a screw protruding through the top of this desk that Ooh. just barely I hit. It, like, it felt like just a little, I was sitting here talking to, to the three of you, and all of a sudden I felt a little nub that I was like, oh, there's a little piece of sand or something on there. And then I'm going, wait a minute, what is this? And then as, as we're talking, I'm discovering, oh, there's a screw holding a batten on right underneath there. Oh, I see what happened. So... I nicked two of my finest blades on this screw. That is a bummer. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Not a great smooth move. I apologize. Who wants to no, go No, it's... It, Mike does. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> that just means you're right. bringing it hard. <laughs> well, uh, this isn't my smooth move, but just a, a sort of a smooth move is... I, I have this weird process where I drop <laughs> chisels off my bench... <laughs> And <laughs> very different than a sandpaper process. <laughs> right. right. I just, like, like, you know, you pull out two or three chisels and you're doing something and you hit one, it just rolls right off the bench and it uh, never lands handle down. It's always yeah. tipped down. And right, so I'm at the point floor? now where every one of my chisels has hit the floor. So that, that, that <laughs> indicates now it is time to go sharp. <laughs> Cement floor? All right, so yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Cement floor. And yeah, so. Which is not good for uh, A1 or O2 or whatever the types Anything. of steel are. Or your back. Yeah, none of them. <laughs> uh, so do you guys want uh, a, an injury story or a I mismade something story? Ooh. I, I, we, uh, we're rarely given In- options. Yeah, right. I come prepared. Okay. Which, which, uh, which I'm going one? injury. All right, maybe not. All right, this is going back a few years uh, okay. when I first started. Since I'm not on the podcast, I, I don't have to come up with a smooth, smooth move in the last two weeks or whatever. <laughs> Go back a few years uh, when I was still pretty, uh, pretty early on. I had just finished making two mantles uh, for people's fireplace, and um, they were pl- one was MDF and painted, and one was plywood. And I had a ton of cutoffs, and like uh, I typically cut cutoffs into like four inch strips, and then I chop them up at the chop saw, and <laughs> then I put them into a in, into a trash can to you know to be picked up on Tuesday or wh- whatever day it was. And the, I had one of those ninety gallon trash cans, you know, with the wheels on the one side and the handles where you kind of like lean it back and then roll it out to the curb. The lid flips open. Uh-huh. That thing was full to the top with plywood and MDF cutoffs, ninety gallons worth. It was oh. raining that morning, and I was in these like little slippery shoes, and I tried to step over a puddle, and I tripped. <laughs> and my left hand was holding onto the handle of this trash can, and I went down to the ground, and my fortunately my left hand. Stopped the trash can from hitting the ground <laughs> and it completely broke all four knuckles on my left hand and I like completely freaked out like I think I was almost like embarrassed like if somebody would have seen me <laughs> I used my, my right that was my left hand I used my right hand to pick the trash can up put it to the curb and then I just like grabbed my hand and I looked down and I saw knuckle and so I run in the house <laughs> This is not your average woodworker injury story. <laughs> no. Well, the, the, the moral of the story is MDF is heavy. <laughs> I run in the house, I grab a paper towel and I put it over my knuckles and I sit down on the floor of the kitchen and I just like, I just feel the sweats coming on and I go, I'm going to go to sleep now. And I just leaned over and I just closed my eyes and I woke up a couple minutes later. And what I didn't tell in this story was I had a meeting with a client. It was a super important meeting, like in an hour or something like that. So I, and I needed the money too, by the way, like I needed this meeting. Uh, so I wrapped up my hand and, uh, I, I go over to this guy's house and I was driving a stick shift car at the time <laughs> and you use your left hand to drive and your right hand to shift and I could hardly steer. So I get over to this guy's house and my truck didn't have power steering, by the way. That's why that's important. Cause like you need two hands to be able to turn this thing. So I get over to this guy's house and, you know, and I knock on the door and he, and he opens the door and 
he go, you know, he looks at me and he's like, Whoa, geez, are you know, are you okay? And I'm kind of like hiding my hand a little bit. I'm like, no, that's good. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. Sign the contract. You know, I'll collect the deposit check. I'll be off to work. And he sees my hand. He's like, Oh geez. Like, let me take a look at that. So it turns out he's a doctor, right? He's retired, but he, he, he was a doctor. He's like, let me take a look at it. So he, he wraps me up and kind of puts some sticks or something on there and, and tape and all that stuff. And, as he's finishing up, uh, I hear the I hear the garage door of their house open, a car pull in, and then I, his his wife comes through the door and kind of comes into the kitchen and she looks and she's like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> and he was like, "Oh yeah, you know he he hurt his hand. I'm just helping him fix it up." And she stares at me like way too long, like really. <laughs> and she looks at me and she goes, "You know he was an OBGYN, right?" <laughs> <laughs> And I kind of go, oh, uh, well, okay. I mean, but you know what? Beggars can't be choosers. So. There you go. There's, there's, there's my broken, broken oh finger smoothies. <laughs> Please tell me you got the job. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no. I actually, and, and to this day, I'm still friends with that guy. Like, we, we email once in a while. <laughs> oh, Can you go like this? Yeah, actually, look at, look at that pinky. That's oh yeah, 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 that's, yeah. Good. that's as good as we got that one. All right, well, <laughs> not bad for an OBGYN, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, did pretty good. I mean, it, it still works like this. Like, I basically, you know, obviously, this podcast you can't see my finger. My 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 left pinky doesn't doesn't go into place. Yeah, it's sort yeah. of like not. It's not doesn't look good. It, it doesn't cooperate. It doesn't play well with the others. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Anissa, are you glad that you waited now? <laughs> what was that reminder oh. <laughs> <laughs> all right uh, now I, now because we actually we keep track of anisa smooth moves for her because she forgets them hang on because there are so many clogged all right my it just says gas station Okay. Does it have to be woodworking related? Apparently not. It could be gas station related, I guess. <laughs> because I have a woodworking related one, but so I was at the gas station about two months ago and I was heading into work. I had just gotten my kids on the bus. I think there was a delay. It was a crazy morning. I have this in New York, in Connecticut, you, you have the little clippy things that just keep the gas going. Yeah, yeah. So I usually fill up in Connecticut where I don't have to stand there and hold. But in New York, where I commute from and where I live, we don't have that. So I stick my gas ca- my gas cap Anissa. in what? It works. You just <laughs> stick something in there. <laughs> and now you have a smooth move to tell of it. <laughs> A, t- a tennis ball really works too with any, but the, the Subaru gas cap fits right in there. And then you can walk in and get your coffee and come out and take care of the gas. Well, I was just New Yorkers can't I was be trusted with out. this responsibility, and I, I I've been doing it for years. It was just an unusually stressful morning, and I came out and I was telling the guy in the Sitco around the corner from me. I was just like, "Oh, can you believe this morning? It was snowing. The the school bus, this and that." I walk out, I get in my car, I drive off and I realize, oh shoot, I didn't, I didn't take the gas, the gas nozzle out of the car and I drove off. But the moral is these things have quick releases and it happens a lot. I want to make sure I understood that story right. You admitted so many wrongdoings there. (laughs) The, The gas fill up thing was still in the car. Yes, the the nozzle was still That's in the car. Hardcore. And I <laughs> yeah. Whoa. Good thing you're not a smoker, <laughs> right? Or at least you weren't smoking then. <laughs> no. But here's I went the inside thing. to get Don't a pack of cigarettes through. There, there's a quick release on these things because I guess what? it used to happen and the gas would spew out all over the place. But there's a quick release on the top where it goes into the tank. And it okay. just pops right off of that. I would call that a close call in addition to a smooth move. <laughs> oh, goodness. All right. So we are going to answer some woodworking questions again. 
All right. Question number three is from Larry. I'd appreciate your take on various aspects of built-ins that I'm grappling with. Uh, one, what is your preferred method for joinery on base cabinets and bookcases? I'm leaning toward a combination of dados, rabbits, and biscuits. A domino is way out of my price range, and I'm not keen on the look of pocket screws. Also, on lower cabinets, I like the idea of a solid wood countertop, but I'm concerned about wood movement with the top of half of the bookcase sitting on top of the counter. So, Mr. Biltons, that's you, Mike. That's you. Nice. That's me. <laughs> um, do you want me to just uh, so, so, answer the first part well, first? Well, this is like, like I, poor Larry probably asked this a year ago, and I said, oh, I should wait until we have Mike Farrington on. Um, so he's built these, I'm sure. Yeah, hopefully uh, this project turned out nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you use, like watching your videos, you use, if it's a joinery method, you use it. You are yeah, that's for sure. an equal opportunity joiner. Um, so what the podcast listeners can't see is that Larry sent in a drawing and yes. it's a pretty big project. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot to it. So with that said, uh, if I was Larry, I would be looking for a way to build this as efficiently as possible in terms of joinery. That is, um, you know, taking, taking too much time to, it, it would just make the project take too long. If you, if you overly complicate this. And I would describe like making built-ins really the kind of the art to built-ins is hiding all the joinery and making it look more like furniture. Okay. So if there's a way that you could build this project with screws, like just butt joints and screws, that's the fastest way to put it together. The trick then becomes how do you hide that and make it look like a piece of furniture? Um, I actually did a little homework on this um, question. There's an article by one of your guys, uh, one of your writers named Steve Casey, okay. and it's called a low console for home theater. And I realize that Larry's project has nothing to do with home theater, but that's not the point. The point is the method of construction. And in this article, Steve has a way of attaching uh, four sides of a box, a top, bottom, left, and right with screws, and then covering up that joinery by applying some solid wood, uh, like frame and panels to the sides. Huh. He miters the front corner to like come around that front edge that actually then becomes the face frame member. And it's actually kind of a genius way of turning a plywood type structure into a, like a furniture grade uh, project. So, to answer his question, the preferred method is the easiest method, which is typically screws. Sometimes dados are needed. If you if, if there's no way to hide a screw, I would then turn to dados. Okay. So I would start with screws, and then I would move to dados, and I would figure out a way to cover everything up and make it look nice and pretty. That's my preferred method for joining uh, cabinets. So, but this makes me... When I watch your videos, you, the, by the way, that's a great find on that article. Um, when I watch your videos, you use biscuits an awful lot. And wouldn't running a line of biscuits be a lot quicker for most things than, than dados? Um, yeah, it depends on how good you are with biscuit joiner. Um, if you're putting a line of biscuits like right in the middle of like the side of a cabinet. So if there's a top and a bottom, now you want to run a dado for that middle shelf. The setup with biscuit joiner can be a little tough because it needs to be equal on both sides. So you'd need to come up with some jig. Typically what I would do is I would take a piece of quarter inch MDF and I would cut it and I would use that as a reference for the bottom of the biscuit joiner. Okay. And then that allows you to mirror to a left and a right side. Um, if you have a nice table saw with a good fence, you can set up a dado stack and run a dado and you know that you're getting a really good reference because you're using the, the, the distance between the dado stack and the fence as a reference as long as you don't cut top side on one and bottom side on the other, um, you'll, you'll get a good even cabinet. So yeah, go ahead. Um, a biscuit joiners fair game in this as well. For me, uh, I really like biscuit joiners for attaching face frames for lining up cabinet box to cabinet box. So if you have two cabinets, you can run a line of biscuits in each of the mm -hmm. two face frames so that during installation, they come together. Perfect. Um, and yeah, doing shelves is good, is good for, for biscuit joiner as well. But this guy in his question, because I read it, uh, he seems like he really likes, you know, dados and rabbits and all that stuff. So if he's comfortable with that, Hey, what the heck? Okay. 
What do you think, Anissa? You're you're a fan of of biscuits and Domino's and all sorts of wacky, not wacky, but technology. <laughs> Domino's are wacky. Well, yeah, sure. Domino's are or are not wacky. I think they are. Watching that thing work is just. Oh I, yeah, I still get magic. I still get weirded out with a little bit wiggling back yeah. and forth. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I, whatever works, it, it's kind of a cop out answer, but whatever whatever he's comfortable with, whatever works. Sometimes I have furniture that I actually screwed together here, so I'm not against doing down and dirty screw it together. And it's amazing how long something like that can last and how you can cover it up. But I like the combo. I I think there's nothing wrong with the pocket hole screws if you're not going to see them. You know, yeah. whatever is going to make it efficient, last a long time, and he's comfortable working with. So do do either of you... I don't worry about this. Like, if you're building a standalone furniture piece that's going to get knocked into with the vacuum cleaner, and it's like, I feel like you need to build in more strength integral to a standalone furniture piece, whereas a built-in... It's kind of, it's, it's, it's built into the wall. It's going to be held together. There's not a whole lot you can do to tear it apart. Um, whenever I think of, of, uh, mortise and tenoning face frames, I'm always like, well, yeah, that's great. But why, you know, like it's, it's, there's, there's nothing to be gained from that. What, what do you think about the strength needed in belt and built ins, Mike? Well, yeah, the guy who wants to mortise and tenon face frames uh, for cabinets that are going to be attached to the wall just doesn't feel like retiring. That, <laughs> that, that would be my opinion. Yeah, I mean, when you're building, um, you know, a piece of furniture and and nice built-ins really are pieces of furniture. Um, it's attached to a 20-ton house. Like, there's a lot of strength. There's a lot of sheer strength um, that that's gained from attaching something to a wall. I couldn't agree more the approach that I take to something that's freestanding versus something that's built in is completely different. Okay. Mm-hmm. Something that's freestanding needs more glue, needs more mortise and tenons. It needs more structure and that needs to be taken account for in the design with built-ins. Yeah. You're attaching it every 16 inches to a stud and uh, it's really not going anywhere. If you look at, you know, quote unquote, high end commercial case stuff that's being put into nice homes, the frameless cabinets, it's just three quarter inch MDF or particle board that's been edge banded with a one millimeter edge banding top, bottom, left, right. And there's a back and then it's just attached to the wall and that's it. And then they apply doors over top of that. So uh, yeah, I agree that, that with, with large built-ins focus less on fine joinery and more on just efficiently making the, the project, especially if it's a very big project. Yeah. Um, the, the one exception that I would of course make to that is the doors Doors are hinged. They get put under a lot of stress. They get hit and banged. Yeah, put a little mortise and tenon in the doors. Yeah, spend uh, spend spend the time on the joinery on the doors and the drawer boxes. Those are the you know the moving parts mm-hmm. versus the the cabinetry itself. What about um, the second part of the question with the solid wood countertop? Um, so in that article that I referenced earlier, mm-hmm. um, the the writer shows a great way to use a biscuit joiner a piece of plywood and some solid wood edging and he miters the corners. That's actually a technique that I, after reading that article used a zillion times over and it works great. As far as using a solid wood top, I wouldn't have a problem with that. I would actually attach it to the bottom of the uppers and allow some expansion to come forward and some expansion to go back towards the wall. So I would attach it like at the face frame through the countertop up into the upper cabinets that are sitting on top of the countertops. Okay, so so it's going to be able to move center out. Center and out, exactly. To the uppers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so then then you won't have a finish line that shows up. So so in other words, if you attached it at the back to the lowers, it's only going to move forward and backwards which could potentially show a little seam in 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 an area yeah. that didn't receive finish. Um, with that said, on um, Larry's particular design, I would say do not do that because it is an L-shaped countertop, of which case you're going to end up dealing with a whole bunch of stuff. It, really, the only way to do that would be to miter the corner of that yeah. and then have two solid wood 
uh, countertops at 90 degrees to each other, which, I mean, if you want to do that, go ahead. That's, um, that is quite a bit of work. And for this, again, for the size of this particular project, that's, that's taken on, uh, th- just the countertops alone would be, would be a decent sized project. Yeah. Okay. You know, another article that might be worth looking at is Bexford's built in, um, where there's a guy who's mostly doing traditional freestanding work and just to watch his approach might be something that, um, that this, that this question, that this reader might be leaning more toward less down and dirty and more traditional built in kind of thing. Yeah. That is an awesome article, which I read like a zillion times. Um, but even in that article, uh, Bexford's using some screws and stuff for, for the basic oh, corner yeah. joinery. But he yeah. has a really great way of, again, hiding that and making it really uh-huh. look like a nice piece of furniture. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll, we'll put both of those in the show notes. Definitely. <clears throat> All right. Uh, let's see. Question number four. Um, I wanted to, from Paul, I wanted to add a candidate for the best material for jig construction. MDO plywood, sometimes called signboard. It's good quality conventional plywood core with resin infused paper on both sides. Uh, The plywood uses exterior glue and the faces are waterproof as well, which is why it's often used as exterior signs. Of course, you have to deal with edges like any plywood. I think of it as halfway between Baltic birch and the ridiculously expensive phenolic plywood. Uh, The surface is very smooth and quite hard and the panels are flat, so it works well for jigs. It can be a little hard to find, but some lumber yards stock it. Do either of you have experience with MDO? Um, I have no. a little. Uh, I can't get it here locally. Uh, oh, okay. Where I used to live in, in San Diego, we did have a way to get it. And so I used it from time to time. Uh, just as a quick side note, they actually put that same like papery coating on other products as well, like particle board, um, which is used in kind of paint grade, you know, lower end paint grade cabinetry. Mm-hmm. Um MDO is pretty cool. I don't wonder if this guy doesn't have some stock in an MDO manufacturing <laughs> company. Uh, no, but it, it, it is a good product. Um, I don't have a ton of experience with it, but um, it, I, I think it would be a great uh, candidate for painted cabinets or for jigs and fixtures um, in the shop. What's your, what's your go-to for, for jigs? Um, MDF when possible, you know, and sometimes that makes them too heavy. Then I would go for Baltic birch after that. Okay. What about you, Anissa? I like phenolic. MDF is great. Whatever I have kicking in the shop, around in the shop that I don't have to go out and get, if I can make it work, I'll do that. Yeah, whatever's free is good, too. If there's offcuts from other stuff, it's like, well, that'll that'll work. Yeah, I always like dream of the day of being able to buy phenolic or whatever, but it's usually offcuts of MDF or particle board that I have lying around from molds and stuff, so... Yeah, I think phenolic would make really awesome like shop cabinet doors. Yeah, uh, it would just have such a cool look to it. You could like put a little chamfer on the edge so you'd see a little of the plies coming through. Yeah, I, I think that would be awesome. If, or maybe like a kid's playroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right on. All right. Well, let's. I, I what? I would take a phenolic kitchen. That would be cool. Yeah, yeah. You know, in in, in the right house in the right setting, you, you could make that look yeah. really awesome. All right. Uh, let's see. We've got some listener comments uh, or a listener comment uh, from Brody eight, 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 a deep dive into the details, looking for a deep discussion of joinery, finishing furniture design. Yep. It's happening here. Anissa, Ben, and that Mike character, not Farrington, unfortunately until now, uh, and others provide the knowledge gleaned from a personal experience and masterful woodworkers that appear regularly in fine woodworking magazine, a bit of whimsy and humor are folded into the details with smart, with smooth moves and favorite techniques. Once you start listening, your only complaint will be waiting two weeks between each episode. We're doing them every week for the, for the isolation period. So, and I am really regretting that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. So does anyone have any random recommendations that they would like to make uh, other than Mike Farrington's YouTube channel? Nobody? Jeff? Do you? Do I? Uh, I had one, but I, I, I forgot it. Um, pull out your old cassettes and listen to the music you used to listen to. Oh, that's depressing. Oh. <laughs> Do you have a- some of it's great. Some of it's like, what was I thinking? 
That is not depressing at all. That's the best thing that's been said on this podcast. <laughs> Jeff comes in with Probably. one sentence and just destroys us all. <laughs> I actually, um, I actually, I remember my recommendation now. It was in honor of Mike Farrington, who always recommends a song every YouTube. Well, you did wait. I don't remember a recommendation in the last one I watched the mahogany wine cabinet thing. There's a reason for that. Okay. All right. Um, uh, I want to recommend anyone probably over the age of 50 to check out, uh, if you ever listen to NRBQ, which was a fantastic band in the late 70s, 80s, uh, to check out Al Anderson's newish band, the world famous headliners. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, I have a joke with my wife that I make a 17-minute woodworking video to post on YouTube, but really my motivation is to talk about music for 45 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't put a song recommendation in every video I do in most. I absolutely adore music. It's like my most favorite thing on this planet. I think I was supposed to be a musician, but I was not endowed with any talent at all. Uh, So Mm -hmm. my recommendation would be stressful times, you know, people out of work, the whole thing is people getting sick. Uh, pull out anything James Taylor. Listen to something easy. Listen to every James Taylor song that he ever made. They're all awesome. Have you ever discovered James's James Taylor's YouTube channel? What? He has. I'm, I'm pulling that up right he now. He has like a 10 minute video of him cutting firewood, talking about a Grants Forest <laughs> Brooks hatchet. It's the greatest thing in the history of the world. So I was a big fan of James Taylor before knowing that. Yeah. Now that I know that. <laughs> Go find it. All yeah, right. I'm going to do that. Anissa? Um, music. If we're go- we'll go, I'll go music. Just started um, it. He did. Surfaces, Sunday Best. It's a great song. Okay. I'll post links to everything. All right. Well, that's all for this episode of Shop Talk Live. If you have questions you'd like us to answer on the show, send them into shoptalk.com. If you are watching on YouTube, please click that thumbs up button. We will be back next week with a bonus episode. Thank you for listening.